Thank you for listening to Weekly Wisdom, the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Haddonfield, New Jersey. This episode is a sermon by Reverend Marvin Lindsay titled Your Name is Israel. It's based on Genesis chapter 32, the story of Jacob wrestling with an unknown assailant in the middle of the night. And in the sermon, Reverend Lindsay talks about how our journey to the promised land that God has in store for us inevitably means that we have to come to terms with the sins and mistakes of our past. We hope that you'll enjoy Bear with me as I once again uh, retell a little bit of how we have gotten to this point. I know if you've been a regular this summer, you're going to hear from next few moments things you already know. But you know, we're not always so regular in, in summer worship attendance. And anyway, much of this would not make sense if we didn't get caught up in the story and how we got here. Jacob was a man that God destined for greatness. But he lived a life that was filled with strife. His mother received a revelation from God while she was pregnant with him and his twin brother that the elder son would serve the younger son. That is, God's promise to this family that this family would inherit land and would have descendants and that this family would bring a blessing to all the nations of the world, that blessing would go through the younger son and not through the older son as tradition and law dictated in that day and age. And that younger son was Jacob. And later on, his mother did everything she could to make sure that the prophecy came true. When her husband was on his deathbed, she dressed Jacob up like his older brother Esau, snuck him into his father's bedroom, and his father invoked on Jacob the powerful, almost magical words of blessing that ancient patriarchs would confer on their eldest sons before they handed the reins over to a new generation. Now Jacob, no sooner had he gotten the blessing that he had to run away from home because his brother was so mad at having been duped that he began to plot to kill him. He went to live with his uncle Abraham. And this young foster Jacob found himself defrauded by his uncle. Not once, but twice. We heard one story last week. Jacob had agreed with Uncle Laban that he would work seven years for him in exchange for his daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. And Laban said, you've got a deal. And then like uh, Darth Vader says to Han Solo, he altered the deal. He snuck his other daughter, Leah, into the bridal chamber. That's who Jacob consummated his marriage with. And then Jacob had to work seven more years to marry the woman of his dreams. Laban also swindled Jacob out of a good portion of the livestock that he had promised to divide between him and his nephew. But still, despite all this, God blessed Jacob. As God had promised to do while Jacob was running away from home, God encountered Jacob and said, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to keep you safe and sound, and bring you home safe and sound. Jacob, between his two wives, and their two maids, and they use this service, family values in the Bible aren't necessarily what we think family values are, but they had 11 boys and a girl. 11 boys and a girl. And Jacob's flocks grew and multiplied so that Jacob became quite wealthy. Again, however, divine blessing 
stirred up human discord. Laban and his sons grew envious of Jacob's prosperity. And Jacob could see which way the wind was blowing on the ranch. And so he gathered his family and his flocks, and they fled from Uncle Laban. Laban discovered that he had been duped. He'd been tricked by the nephew that he'd been tricking for all these years. And so he and his men set out after them. And because Jacob was driving flocks and Laban's men were on camels, they caught up pretty quickly. Laban was really hot with Jacob, not only because he had run away, but also because he had discovered some sacred family heirlooms missing right around the time that Jacob took off. And he accused his nephew of stealing them. Now Jacob defended his, himself and strenuously maintained his innocence, not knowing that his wife Rachel had in fact stolen the earlier. But he defended himself strenuously and he said, I've worked like a dog for you for all of these years and I have been honest in all of my years with you and I have been repaid dishonesty for honesty and hard work. And the wily old lady finally admitted to you. He said, okay. He kissed his, his children goodbye. He kissed his grandchildren goodbye. And he returned to Haran in Mesopotamia. And Jacob went back to Canaan, to the land that God had promised to his ancestors and to him. Now, homecoming for Jacob means a rendezvous with a brother who is probably still seeming mad about the wrong brother. So Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to warn Esau that he was on his way. And they returned to Jacob with ominous words. Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men. In the modern U.S. Army, that's the size of some battalions. We're talking about somebody in a whole lot of trouble. Jacob was scared to death. And so he dealt with this frightening situation with doing some planning, doing some praying, and then doing a little more planning. Uh, his first plan was that he divided his uh, livestock in two. And he figured, well, if Esau plunders one group, maybe the other group could get away. And then the other thing that he did was he sent more of his livestock down the road, uh, herded by his men in waves as presents to his brother Esau, thinking, maybe I can appease his wrath with these gifts. Maybe this will atone for the sin that I committed against him. And in between this strategizing, Jacob prays a prayer. And in this prayer, Jacob gives God all the credit for the prosperity that he has enjoyed over the last two decades. He admits to God that he is scared to meet his brother, that his brother might kill him, his brother might wipe out his family, and all of he all that he has amassed over the last two decades. And he boldly reminds God of the promise that God made to Jacob. You promised me you would be with me, and that you would deliver me home safe and sound. He calls on God to keep that promise. So again, I appreciate your uh, patience with me as I uh, retell the story and get us caught up between last week and this week. Uh, I think it does make the scripture reading this morning a little more understandable, but even still, there are a lot of mysteries in this story that 
sneakiness was dreadful for us. Why does Jacob return to the far side of the river after bringing his family and his livestock across the Jether? Who is this man who jumps him in the middle of the night? And what are his motivations? What does it mean to struggle with God and with human beings and prevail? How do you prevail in a struggle with God? And, and who, what kind of person could possibly prevail in a wrestling match with the Almighty? Well, I do have some theories, uh, none of which are ironclad. And the wonderful thing about the story is that there's so much left to the imagination, you can go in a million different ways with interpretation. This is my way, but it doesn't have to be your way. Jacob has spent his whole life running away from his problems. And he blew up his family. His mother put him up to it, but he blew up his family and he ran away from home. And then he ran away from his extended family after his success as a herder brought him into conflict with them. And now he's got to confront the mess he made of his family years before. Maybe he's afraid of getting killed. Maybe he's afraid of seeing everything he's worked so hard for taken away from him. Maybe he's simply afraid of owning up to the past. At any rate, Despite God's promises, despite his faithful prayer, I wonder if Jacob cracked that night and then didn't go back to his default pattern of running away from his mistakes. Maybe he's on the far side of the river getting ready to sneak off in the dead of night. Start all over again, in a new place, new situation. You know, he's kind of like a cat, he can land on his feet. That's what he decided to do when suddenly, Someone grabs him and pins him to the ground. Who is it? Well, maybe it's a troll that haunts that uh, part of the river and waylays travelers in the middle of the night. Uh, but someone, you know, a troll that has to let go of his prey uh, when first light comes, lest he turn to stone. Later on, in the scriptures, the prophet Hosea, remembering this story, says that it was an angel. Jacob wrestled with an angel at the ford of the Jabbok River. Jacob himself thinks that it was God himself that he wrestled with that night. I've seen God face to face and lived to tell about it. He marvels, sunrose, over the river. Maybe, maybe it was Esau who snuck across the river that night and gave his little brother the weapon that he deserved before he snuck back across the river and greeted him and magnanimously forgave him. Because that's what happens the next day. Jacob meets Esau, and Esau says, well, before he says anything, he cries. And he breaks down crying, and he hugs his brother. And then he says to him, what is all this stuff that's coming up the highway for me? And Jacob says, presents for you, my brother. And Esau says, I don't need any of that. Life's been good to me. I'm okay. I'm alright. And then they go their separate ways, but not before Jacob says the same thing that he says that morning. He says, Brother, seeing you as I see the face of God. Maybe Jacob recognized who was wrestling with him when he saw him in the daylight. I don't know. I don't think it was a troll. Okay. I'll rule that out. 
But I also don't think that there's much difference in identifying the nighttime assailant as God or as Esau. They're basically one of the same for Jacob. Jacob's a man of destiny, remember? God has promised the land of Canaan to his offspring. And on that land stands the one whom Jacob has sinned against. The only way that Jacob can make it to the promised land is to own up to the sin that sent him running away from the promised land to begin with, that caused him to forsake this destiny and this gift that God had offered to him. God is determined that God's will for Jacob will be done. So God, or, or God's angel, God's messenger, God's agent, grabs Jacob by the collar, throws him down to the ground, and begins to drag him toward his destiny. Jacob does not want to embrace his destiny. Jacob resists his destiny because his destiny is tied up in a confrontation with his brother. And he resists with all his might. Human beings are more than capable of resisting the will of God because human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. We can give God a run for his own. And we do give God a right personally. We resist because the only way for us to the promised land is the way of Jacob. It is through a reckoning with our past. And if we have to do that, we will turn tail and we'll go the other way. We'll find some other land to call home than the land that God has promised us. Everyone wants to go to heaven. But if our own personal Esau's want a word with us on the way, well, we squirm. We fight. We resist. And we're wounded in that struggle. But when all is said and done, we discover that the grace of God is, as the Reformed Confessions say, irresistible. We, like Jacob, are destined for the promised land because God has destined us to be there. And the way to that promised land is facing up to what we have done. Rabbi Daniel Rutenberg has spent the last few years studying the writings of a medieval Jewish philosopher named Moses Maimonides, studying specifically his words on repentance. Her study bore uh, fruit in a book that uh, one of our book clubs read last spring. And one of his teachings in particular caught her eye. The teaching about what you do in the terrible situation when you've done something wrong and you can't make amends to that person because they're no longer here. If that's the case, if the person you're sending against has passed away, then this is what you do, my mind says. You, you gather ten witnesses. And you go to the grave of that deceased person, that person that you wronged. And you confess your sin against that person before God and before those ten witnesses. And in this way, you will atone for that sin. Now, Rupert was pondering this teaching quite a bit over the last couple of years because that was the position she found herself in. When she was in college a couple of decades ago, her mother was diagnosed with cancer. And during her junior year in college, the cancer metastasized. And the doctor said in the fall of her junior year that nothing more could be done 
that she needs to undergo process here. Now, Ruth Burr's parents were divorced, and so it fell to her and to her brother, who was 24, and to an aunt to arrange in the blood care for her mother. Can you imagine being saddled with that responsibility at the age of 20? And so things got worse, and when she was home for Christmas break, her mother's pain became unmanageable, and they had lots of conversations with the hospice nurse, and finally on the nurse's advice, they called an ambulance, and mom was admitted to the hospital. And they inserted a feeding tube, first thing, which was a miserable experience for a woman who was already experiencing a great deal of pain and suffering. Now, this happened to occur on New Year's Eve, and both she and her brother had made plans, but of course those plans had blown up in the face of what happened. But her mother said, you've got plans for New Year's Eve. I want you to go keep those plans. And she did. She left her mom and she went to a concert because she was at her limit and she couldn't face her mother's suffering anymore. And her mom died a few weeks later. And for 25 years, Dana Rittenberg lived with the shame and the regret of having abandoned her mother in a time of great need. It was like a stone that sat in the pit of her stomach and in the pit of her soul. And having done this study and this reading, this research, she had decided that now it was time to own up to what she had done. So she contacted 10 trusted friends. Now, this was happening at the beginning of the pandemic. And so they decided that rather than fly to Chicago and gather at a cemetery, they would gather online. And so they met on a Zoom meeting, and she told them the secret that she had been carrying around for 25 years. And then something interesting happened. Her witnesses offered some alternative interpretations of that horrible years Eve 25 years ago. Maybe your mother told you to leave because she wanted to be alone. Maybe she wasn't being passive aggressive. Maybe she was actually telling you the truth. Go. Or maybe you had done so much for her that fall. Uh, she felt like she was in your debt, and so she wanted to repay you by giving you a night out with your friends. Or maybe she was tired of being tended to by her children. I, I hear that when that role is reversed, it can be difficult for both parties. Maybe she wanted to assert a little autonomy over her own self in the situation. So Rickard still regrets not staying that night with her mother. She still feels like she did her mother wrong that night. She still thinks that she caused her mother some pain and suffering that night. But, she writes this, My friends' faces held me as I cried my way through my story, and by letting light shine on this dark thing, that the choice I made, the choice that I still regret, is a part of who I am, but it is not a part of who I will always be. Now, Rabbi Rutenberg's story is not exactly the same as Jacob's story. Dana let down her dying mother. Jacob tricked his dying father 
and his brother. She was not able to make it up to her mom. Jacob was able to offer his brother restitution. Jacob saw the face of God in his struggle to avoid accountability, and in the face of the brother he had wronged and who had now decided to let bygones be bygones. Rupert saw the face of God in the faces on that computer screen as they listened to her confession. So they're not the same story, but in another sense they are the same story. And their story is our story as well. We all struggle with mistakes we've made, with past regrets. And God holds us accountable for those past mistakes, for those sins that we've done wrong. Holds us accountable in an embrace that we cannot break free from. And in that struggle and in that embrace, we prevail because God's good will has the final say in our lives and in our destiny. In the name of the one who is and who was and who is. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast so that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. To support our ministry, go to www.haddonfieldprez.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the page. Grace and peace be with you.